the Empire Podcast this week, we get spooked by paranormal activity star Katie Featherstone in a rare interview. Frank and Winnie's Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara pop in to judge the strength of our questioning. And we welcome Beasts of the Southern Wild director and star Ben Seitlin and Quifengine Wallace into the pod booth. Oh, and that's not all. We've got news. We've got reviews. We've got shoes. We've got it all. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that has binders full of Wookiees. People often ask me where we record the Empire Podcast. Actually, nobody asks me, but uh, never mind. We record it in a booth belonging to Heat on the third floor of our building, a better, better known as Bauer Tower. It's a smallish booth, but it's suitable for our needs, and it's got four microphones, one for me and three for my colleagues, who this week are Ali Plum, who more and more often, not today, but you're turning up the office in a suit more and more often these days. So I'm sensing job interviews. Well, what's happening? Uh, well, yeah, I'm going to start up my own magazine, and it's called Total Entertainment SFX. <laughs> and I think it's going to have a broad reach and, and a strong market. And if you guys want to join me, I'm in. You're in. I'm in. I'm totally in. Because I'm guessing that whatever it is, it's a pay rise. So <laughs> live in large. Rich at last. Uh, we're also delighted to welcome Phil DeSimlian, a man so addicted to art house cinema. He's just launched a Kickstarter campaign to bring F.W. Murnau back from the dead. Hi, Phil. How's it going? He's dead? He's dead. He's proper dead. <laughs> oh, no. You're right. You okay? <laughs> oh, no. Just watch those. And he's wearing a suit every day because he's interviewing Emily Blunt a lot at the moment. <laughs> I interviewed her Let's once, and that was in a dream. That's that's be very clear here. Interview is not a euphemism. <laughs> just, I just want to say he is actually interviewing Emily Blunt. And you heard her earlier on. For the first time of four podcasts, this podcast will no longer be a swinging sausage fest. <laughs> or maybe it might be. Who knows what happens in Las Vegas? Ew. For Helen O'Hara is back, back, back. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Good, good, good. A lot of people have missed you. Uh, A lot of readers have been writing in going, you're soothing your voice. It's it's gone. Yeah. I tried my best. To? Have a a soothing voice. Right, okay. I try to replicate your Northern Irish tones. Uh, Welcome to the Empire Podcast. That is uncanny. You were in Las Vegas. Yeah. How was that? Bizarre and weird, yeah. And a bit of a culture shock after being (laughs) in the mountains for like a week. And then you get to Vegas. It was bizarre. Right. And you were actually hanging out with a cowboy. I was actually hanging out with a cowboy. We went horse riding and got attacked by a rattlesnake. If you ever do see one, obviously movies have taught us the best thing to do when you have a rattlesnake is to grab it by with your hand and then bite it, rattle off, (laughs) and then spit it, and then you chuck the rest up a tree. Come on, hard target. Punches it in the head, knocks it out. Yeah. Obviously. So punch it in the face. Yeah, big time. Don't try this at home. <laughs> really don't. No, really don't. Or anywhere. Don't go to Yosemite or no. anywhere and try it there. Uh, okay, enough gabbling. Shut up, Helen. Uh, we've got a bumper crop of interviews this week, so let's mess with the formula and go straight to Katie Featherstone instead of taking all the readers' questions. Uh, Katie Featherstone is, of course, in her own quiet way, one of the highest grossing actresses on the planet, I guess. Uh, she's the star of the first Paranormal Activity movie, in which she played the unfortunate Katie, bit of a stretch. Uh, she was the target of a demonic possession, and she cameoed briefly in the wildly successful second and third installments. Now she's back properly as Katie in the first true Paranormal Activity sequel, Paranormal Activity 4, which opened this week. The other two were parallel coils and prequels, respectively, before you write in angrily. Uh, she hasn't done a lot of interviews in the past, so we were delighted to welcome her to the pod booth, and even more delighted to find out she's surprisingly has very few demons. She was talking to myself and Phil. We're delighted to be joined in the pod booth uh, by Katie Featherstone, the star of the Paranormal Activity franchise now, which I imagine you were quite surprised that it's turned into this because... We did not anticipate it being a a franchise. No, we, in the beginning, Oren, Mika and I, it was just the three of us and, and we just wanted to make the very best movie we could make and we weren't even convinced anyone would ever even see it. Yeah. So... Uh, we were 
beyond thrilled when it did well and people were excited about it and and to be here now talking about a fourth one is kind of kind of crazy because <laughs> the first one cost what 25 this I, is the this is the legend anyway around yeah, the, the first movie 15,000 I 15, think 15,000 it's gone down <laughs> every year it gets cheaper now I think it was I think it was around 15,000 uh, the, the bulk of it at least mm-hmm. and um, and it and it brought in a good amount of profit considering so um so it was a it was a it was a huge long endeavor for it to actually get seen by the light of day. We made it, my goodness, it was like my first year out in Los Angeles. We filmed it in two thousand and six, and then mm. it didn't come into theaters until two thousand and nine. Right. So there was never a moment in that process where any of us were like, okay, yeah, it's going to be huge ever. Even when even when it came out, I was still like you know waiting tables and and you know doing the whole normal life kind of thing because yeah. there was we never knew how it would do, and it was. Absolutely, all because of fans. Fans heard about it, spread the word, were excited about it, and that's why we're still here. So it's we're very thankful to them. Yeah, and it quickly morphed into the most amazing date movie as well. You, you could go with yeah. a girl, and you knew that when things got really scary, yeah. you could hide behind mm. her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's funny. I um, when before we filmed the first one, Mika and I had only met at the audition, and so we were like, well, if we're going to improv an entire movie together, as if we'd you know been a couple, we should probably at least spend an evening or, or so together to get to know each other. So we went to this thing called Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios oh, in, yeah. in Los Angeles. And um, and for, for as big and macho as Mika, he's going to hate me for saying this, <laughs> macho as he pretends to be, we were going through those haunted houses and every time there was a scare, he was, not only would he hide behind me, he would thrust me out in front of him <laughs> to protect him from that. And I was like, really, this is how it's going to be? You're just going to throw me out there? And he's like, I can't do it. I'm, he would get so scared. He is, he really gets scared. At Giant time, wuss. So. Well, in fairness, <laughs> he has had an obituary written about him, hasn't he? I think People he has. thought he was actually dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a documentary though. It is absolutely Absolutely, 100% not a documentary. And none of this would have happened. None of, we wouldn't have been in part four, or maybe you wouldn't have been in part four, had the original ending right. gone ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, uh, there, the original ending was, I think, um, not, as, not as fun, not quite as maybe, didn't have the same sort of like great send-off as the one that as the theatrical version but it was more sort of realistic it was um possessed katie is is stays in the house and and the police the friend calls the police and they discover mika's body and then and then they they end up shooting katie who at the Mm. very very last second sort of becomes unpossessed and Mm. she dies so had that happened then there would not be a a series as we know it at least um, but what happened was Steven Spielberg saw the movie which is first of all just insane that, <laughs> that he saw that before the before it all came out and got excited about it I remember I remember hearing that he saw the movie and liked it and I was in my apartment and uh, Orin was like well Steven Spielberg saw the movie and he liked it and I just like sat down <laughs> and I was like Orin are you serious is this happening um, but he saw it and he said you know let's let's work on the ending and, and gave us a lot of notes and and we went back and, and reshot a couple of different versions and, and mm. ended up with one that I think is more more fun for an audience and um, so what did he say exactly did he just think it was too on the nose the way that it I don't know I don't know really I don't know really what I don't think it had as 
the movie, the the original ending, although I think it was more sort of like true to, to life, if this were an actual real story, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't as fun. It wasn't as much of a send off. You have this in, this movie that keeps building up, building up, building up, and then that that ending sort of let it trail off, as opposed to really giving it a good bang. So I think both endings are valid and both endings are good, but it just depends on what you want out of the out of the movie going experience. So you know when Steven Spielberg says let's work on something uh, to improve it, then you work on it and you improve it. <laughs> And you take those notes, and you are thankful for them. So it was it was really fun to go back and and he wasn't of course there, but his uh, Ashley Brooks and, and Jason Blum were there, and and Ashley was like, well, Stephen wants you to try this, and I was like, all right, let's do it. This is the yeah. coolest thing ever. Stephen wants you to run away from a giant boulder. In the show. <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. Whatever you need, whatever you need. <laughs> That's his go-to note in any film: <laughs> giant boulder running after someone. But was he has he been involved in, in any way, shape, or form with the uh, the other three films? Or has um, been... You know, I don't know. I uh, I don't not that I, not to my knowledge. Yeah. Of course, I you know, there's I'm sure tons of things that go on that I'm unaware of. I did act. I was able to meet him. Paramount turned uh, 100 years old, and they had this giant picture taken, and, and they asked me to be part of it, which oh, was yeah. a huge honor. So there was all these, you know, uh, amazingly talented, hugely famous people, and then me. And I was like, what? This, this is amazing. I mean, there's Tom Cruise, and there's Harrison Ford, and it was crazy. Uh, but Steven Spielberg was there, and I always told myself that if I was in the same room with him, I would I would thank him, because his interest in our film was was really instrumental in in, in continuing its progress and mm. um it was meant a lot to us and uh and so i did i walked up to he was talking to leonardo dicaprio I was like, is this my life what is going on right now and he recognized me and he was like oh katie and i was like what <laughs> and um he was so genuine and so kind and like really listened to me and and we had a really nice exchange, so I was very thankful for that. Did he ask for your ideas on the ending of Lincoln? He didn't. He, you know, shockingly enough, that did not come up. He did not. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, if he ever calls, I'd be sure to oh, be sure to take his call. Do you remember who you were standing next to in the Paramount lineup? I was standing next to Jack Black and uh, Paul Rudd, and they oh. were so. I was so nervous, you know, because I was. It was like it was a giant, you know, soundstage, but it was only incredibly famous people. There wasn't anyone else there, so the, everywhere you turned you were like oh there's you know i mean it was just amazing so they were so funny and so down to earth and i remember paul rudd turns i I turned to him and i was like because in my head i'm thinking okay katie you're gonna make some friends you're not gonna just be a shy girl standing in the corner you're gonna you're gonna step up Mm. so i like reached out and i was like i was like hi paul i'm i'm katie it's so nice to meet you and he was like oh katie yeah it's great to see you again and i was like no no, Paul, you, you don't know me. And he's like, okay, I didn't think so, but then I wasn't sure. I didn't want to be rude. And I was like, it's cool. It's cool. So they were they were really nice. So it was a, it made it for a really fun, um, a really fun experience. So what has paranormal activity meant for your career? Um, you know, it's been a huge blessing. It's uh, it's you know, it means I get great auditions, and it means that I can get into rooms with people, and it means that I don't have to take every single acting job that comes along just just because it'll help me pay the bills so it's mm-hmm. it's been a huge huge blessing and and it's really fun to you know we have the same crew and the same production team and whatnot on every on every sequel for the most part so it's really fun every summer so far um to show up and basically have this family atmosphere and film mm-hmm. a movie with people you really care about so that's a really fun gig to have and how big are those crews because 
I know the first movie was was very no, you know, you know, very basic. It, it was, was basically it was you guys and it was us, and we had like his Orin's best friend and girlfriend at the time helped us with the big stunt, the uh, like dragging down the hall and stuff like that. Yes, there was like a sheet thing and a door maneuver that had to happen. It was. I was going to say I really wanted to know how you did that. Yeah, it how was, did you do that? It, we did it practically. I mean, I you know we had like a, a brace on my leg that he, that Orin took out frame by frame digitally later <laughs> and uh they drug me out of bed and then they had like a string going i don't remember how it was but i remember they drug me out of bed and then they dragged me down the hall over and over you know, what happens if they like pulled your hip out or something or? that did not happen i did i was all like bruised from being you know because that was the hardwood floor but because um, there's no getting away from it i mean it's an incredibly painful looking thing it to was have done yeah. to you. it was incredibly painful however it was Worth it. Yeah. How, did, how did you uh, you come to acting? Because you mentioned that you were you were waiting tables. Yeah. while doing paranormal activity. Was that? Uh, I decided the first day of seventh grade uh-huh. that I was going to be an actress. It was a a speech class, and they were doing an improv, and they asked. They were like, you know, okay, we're going to do this improv. Who wants to go up? And I was so shy as a kid, and I thought, Katie, you can either go up there and do that improv, or you can sit in this class and you can hate it for the rest of the year. So I jumped up, and it was a, um, it was an like a aerobics class scene, and so I just decided to be the girl who couldn't do the moves like right on beat, and so people laughed, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing! <laughs> oh, clearly this is my career, and then that was it, and I was done. And my dad, I told my dad, I was like, I'm going to be an actress, and he was like, okay, hon, that sounds great. You can do anything you want to do. And then by the time college rolled around, and I was like, I'm still going to be an actress, dad. And he was like, I know, I know you are. Okay, I'm, I'm on board. So, and that was it. How did your dad get on with paranormal activity? Oh, he hates scary movies. Oh my gosh, he's a uh, he's a, a retired police officer, and he did like undercover narcotics, and he was a homicide detective. I mean, you could send him into a building, and and he'd you know go through the doors and look for the bad guys and be fine. But you sit him down in front of a TV with a scary movie, and he turns into like this giant scaredy cat, and uh, <laughs> and. I hope he never hears me talking about him like this. But he uh, <laughs> he hates scary movies and he watches them because I'm in them. But that's the only reason. And he he just sits there the whole time. And goes Katie Diane, what are we watching? Oh, Katie Diane, can't you can't you can't you be in a western, Katie? And so that's the other thing. I have to be in a western for my dad. So oh yeah, that's that's we're from Texas. You know, he lives on a on a ranch. So it's yeah. it's first of all, I mean, I'd be great in it. I've had horses. You know, Texas thing. But uh, also, he wants me to do it. So hi, uh, Katie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, Thanks very much for coming thank in. Thank you so Thank you. Hello, hello. Jesus. She right. could come and do podcasts, I think, because she what, was doing what, her... Helen? No, well, obviously, Helen already Helen's is. Helen's here. She's ahead of the curve on that one. Oh, right, okay. Katie Featherstone was doing the... Um, she did yeah. radio, college radio, didn't she? She did, like, a Jack Killian midnight caller slot. <laughs> and she was she was doing her impression of herself. Is yeah. that an impression? Not really. <laughs> an impression she of was herself. doing it, wasn't she? She was doing, like... Yeah, she was doing her song. radio love voice. Birds. Yeah. And now the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Which boy we all threw ourselves through the window. <laughs> that was nice. She Which makes good. a change from Katie Featherstone throwing people through windows and doors and all sorts of stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I thought she was uh, she was lovely and not in any way demonically possessed, which is a, which, which is, is a good, good thing. Yeah, and so this just to be clear, this room is safe. We're we're, we're sure that it's free of demons. We've had a blast by Max Mosedow, so we should be good. He tells me he's a priest, so it should work. What the hell is that noise? So I was trying to make a scary demonic noise. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that really is. <laughs> That'll do it.
Okay. Uh, a review of Paranormal Activity 4 is coming up later in the show. Sorry, Ali, for, for, for spiking the sound. Uh, okay, it's time for your readers' questions now, where you get to prod and probe us like it's your own personal Guantanamo Bay. Uh, no, it's inappropriate. That's what? Come on. It's in the zeitgeist. Let's start with at Fidel Afro's Ebo, who asks, uh, have you ever looked back at an old review and cringed at a line? <laughs> or maybe the whole thing? If so, what review and why? I'm giving it. I'm, I'm having a, an Attack of the Clones sweepstake here. How long? No, do you think I was going to go for a different one of your reviews. Oh, okay, and I think I know the one you're talking about. I stand by every word. But go on, go on, go on. Hit if me with you it. don't like Shawshank, yep. you're beyond redemption. No, 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 no. If you don't like Shawshank, chances are you're beyond redemption. Oh, I apologise. And then I finished off with Get, get busy, busy Living, living get, get Busy, busy buying. buying. Come on. I actually kind of like that. It's awesome. <laughs> what what I love more than either of those uh, is smell it with your eyes. <laughs> that was from Dan Jolin's review of Perfume. Not, I was reviews editor at the time, and he said he put that line in at the end and assumed I would take it out. And I was just so amused by it that I, you know, made sure it went to publication. He's lying. Well, he's really proud of that line. Also, Dan is the author of the uh, the Borat poster quote. Uh, we ended up as supposed to quote uh, you'll laugh so hard you'll burst half the blood vessels in your face that's right Which so Dan's, not- Dan's obsessed with faces and things happening to your face and that sounds I, I, that's not a recommendation I wouldn't go to a movie go, oh, oh, I'll burst half the blood vessels in my face so I'll die of internal bleeding if I go see Borat no I don't think so somehow moving on at Clark Angel asks uh, if a film were made about the history of Bond who would play Sean Roger etc I've got this totally wrapped up you guys ready? Yeah, oh, all right. Saves us work. Sean Connery, yes, for me, uh-huh. is uh, Brolin. Oh, Roger, and wait for it, is John Krasinski. <laughs> what? Wait, wait, don't ask me why. I just felt right. <laughs> okay. Lazenby is Channing Tatum. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fassbender is Dalton. Mm-hmm. And John Hamm is Pierce Brosnan. And I play Bob Simmons. See, I would have John Hamm play all of them. Sorry, you play who? Bob Simmons. Who's Bob Simmons? The original Bond, the first Bond you see is in the, in the gun barrel sequence. Really? Yeah, he's the stunt, uh, the stunt man. Your hair is too curly. I'd get a wig uh, that would flatten it down somehow. Yeah, or a hat. Ah, yeah, yeah. He wears, hat. he wears hats yeah. and stuff. So Bob Simmons is the original, because uh, but he's not the original Bond, Bond, because that was Barry Nelson, mm. and also wasn't Bob Holness a Bond, or wasn't there a sort of a, a rumor at one point that he had he. Had been Bond and Casino Royale on a radio and Bob, Bob Monkhouse yeah give me a, I'll have a cue please Bob etc I'll have an M etc etc go on so forth yeah the Goldfinger Rush the <laughs> Goldfinger Rush <laughs> that's uh, I've not heard that before <laughs> who'd play Teddy Savalas oh the principal from Community <laughs> <laughs> what Jim about Rush. Sam Worthington for um, for Lazenby yeah, well because he's Australian well yeah that was the starting yeah. point I've got to so, be racist. So, uh, sorry I've got, to, I've got to pull you up in your bond here. sorry because <laughs> you, you, you thought it would have gone on challenge but no it's not going to go on challenge so sorry Sean Connery is played by Josh Brolin why because I want him to be okay and uh, Roger Moore is John Krasinski <laughs> that's horrible but hang on I mean John Krasinski love him mm-hmm. um, but kind of famed for a sort of geeky kind of charm I don't know how I don't know why it just but felt right he was up for uh, hang on I know why he's Emily Blunt's husband isn't he a little bit and you want to get close to Emily Blunt to John Krasinski yep. so you can bump him off mm-hmm. and take his place <gasps> all I'm saying is on set accident <laughs> wait a second so your hypothetical example has a subtext well yeah like all that's Bonds that's quite do. Bondy yeah I was going to say yeah weird that's, though 
that's unbelievable. So you're going to give him like what an exploding watch and go. <laughs> and uh, remember, John, don't turn it to the, uh, the to the, the the twelve hand. Otherwise, something bad will happen. But it's actually the eleven hand, and <gasps> so his, he blows up and dies. Did you I mean, read my script? Yeah. And then Emily comes in. She's oh no, my husband's dead. And you go, oh, well, why don't you rest your head on my shoulder, dear? <laughs> and then there you go. <laughs> Thereby impersonating the man that is the husband was just impersonating. Do that again, Chris. That was amazing. Why don't you rest your head on my shoulder, dear? Ah, a woman. <laughs> this is terrifyingly specific at this point. <laughs> Could David Walliams play Roger Moore? And Blofeld would have to be played by Matt Lucas. <laughs> that's quite good. No, that's, that's a pairing people good. would watch. He's keeping the little British end up, sir. Very good. Thank you. I think uh, you should swap them. Uh, so Connery should play Moore. Moore yep. should play Lazenby. <laughs> Lazenby should play Dalton. Dalton should play Brosnan. And Brosnan should play Connery. Now that's an acting challenge. Wow. And Craig plays himself. Yes. Steve okay. Coogan. Craig plays Steve Coogan. Uh, okay, there you go, Clark Angel. Sorted. Done. Uh, okay, so moving on. At Phil J. Bowers asks, Why the sudden backlash against Marvel movies from Hugo Weaving and Wally Pfister? If you don't know what this is about, basically this week, by coincidence really, Hugo Weaving was uh, being interviewed and he said, someone said, will you come back and play the Red Skull at any point in Captain America 2 or whatever? And he goes, no, I don't think I will. I'm contractually obliged. But you know, I tried doing a movie like that and it was fun at the time, but I don't think I want to do it again. Not really a backlash. Uh, and then Wally Pfister, who is the cinematographer on The Dark Knight Rises and pretty much all of Christopher Nolan's films, came out and said that The Avengers was an appalling piece of filmmaking. I think he meant from a technical point of view. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's shot by Seamus McGarvey, who's also one of the best in the business. But but uh, I wouldn't call it a sudden backlash. Uh, I'd just say Wally Pfister is quite candid. They do quite different things, I think, for me. Wally Pfister is quite surprising because it isn't quite a specific diss of a colleague, of a peer. Yeah. It was quite a specific aesthetic thing. I think he wasn't dissing the Marvel franchise or The Avengers as a movie I think he had some problems with the way that the way that it was shot certain angles which would be a collaborative issue anyway with Joss Whedon so that was one thing I think in terms of Hugo Weaving well he lives down under I don't maybe he didn't really relish the prosthetic work that was involved there's a lot of hours in the makeup chair and you know he has been in The Matrix he's been in Lord of the Rings it's not as if he's a stranger to the idea of being in a big movie where you're on set for a certain number of days and you know it's hanging around and it's a massive thing and it's not the organic actory business that a lot of actors love Mm. Um, so I don't think it's that I think it's probably the, the former and again I don't think it's a specific diss of Marvel yeah I don't think there's a cabal of people in Hollywood who are getting together going hee 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 he, let's take down Marvel I don't think it's, it's just a complete coincidence mm. I, I'd agree actually I, mean, I, saw, I was on set of Captain America and saw Hugo Weaving in the makeup and he, he did comment at the time how uncomfortable it was so um, I mean they, they did the best for him and he, he acknowledged that as well but I think it's, it's a bit of a trial to act under that, that many layers of prosthetics and then they obviously had CG enhancement as well so he had to deal with all of those little tiny problems mm. that that brings up you know the removal of the end of his nose that kind of thing so what did they do with his nose on set basically on set he was entirely made up like a red skull um, and his nose was entirely painted red but then they had uh, little dots to remove the, the sort of the tip of the nose basically where there wouldn't be bone um, and I think enhance the boniness of the face as well so they had kind of further kind of shrinking of the flesh all over the face Mm. Um, so it was it was a complicated process. It, I mean, he looked very impressive. He looked a lot like Red Skull already, but then they just added extra layers. Yeah, and as, as Phil points out, Agent Smith doesn't require any prosthetics, uh, and he says in the same interview actually that his work as Megatron in the Transformers movies <laughs> essentially involves him turning up for a couple of hours every couple of years, recording some lines. He's never met Michael Bay, and he doesn't really he doesn't watch the films. He doesn't he doesn't know anything about <laughs> about the movies. He's got off <laughs> likely there, I think. Um, and what else has been in? 
Lord of the Rings that's a couple of that's a few days work every couple of years yeah, fake years which he's probably got himself now let's <laughs> be honest I don't think it's a sudden backlash I think this is just no. a storm in a teacup he, he did say that he's contracted to be in a number of the movies he didn't think the character would return in the next one the one after but no, he would if required he would come back and would do minimum sulking but I think <laughs> by uh, by saying something so openly I think he's pretty much guaranteed that he won't be coming back it's probably a, probably a canny move in his part Oh, we'll see, we'll see. We'll see, we'll see. Okay, so uh, at Nandy Selson asks, uh, I just watched Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> I like this question. If you could live in one movie house, what would it be? One movie house. I quite fancy Rivendell. <laughs> no Wi-Fi, though. Royal Tenenbaums would be my house. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Old ramshackle, city location, near the parks. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Mm. Um, I like Mr. White's house on Lake Como. <laughs> and he's dead, so I could have it, I assume. Also, um, He's not dead. Or is he? He's not dead. Is he? Damn. He doesn't Let's die. just say hypothetically. Anyway, he's probably moved out because everyone knows where he is. Anyway, <laughs> that's a nice house. Good location, close to George Clooney's place. Yes. Um, other houses that I love tend to burn down. Um, Bruce Wayne's <laughs> mansion, Tara. Uh-huh. Yeah, have to have a good fire extinguisher but those are nice locations too but I'm with Ali nice to have something metropolitan maybe I can't remember what the building's called in Ghostbusters where they all end up somewhere like that on Central Park would be nice what the, the fire station where they, that they turn no, into no, the no, no 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 the final oh Spook Central yes exactly Dana's apartment building yes, so you'd like exactly. somewhere that's possessed essentially I'm assuming that it would you know demon dog in a fridge <clears throat> Mm, yeah. No, not ideally nothing in the fridge by way of Sumerian demigods, but, <laughs> you know, it'll be clear that by then. That was a while ago. What about the original Cabin in the Woods, the one from Evil Dead, which never looked like a desirable holiday destination? It's not a massive des res, is it? It's not really, is Pretty it? Pretty drafty. It is drafty, yeah. And you keep being attacked by demons and having to chop your hand off and all sorts of stuff. Uh, Tony Stark's house. Other houses I would not... Yeah, yeah Penthouse, Stark's house, Penthouse and Stark Tower. I'd, I love... Um, it's very, very small, obviously, but I love Corbin Dallas's flat in uh, Fifth Element just because it's so... High-tech. High-tech, and so, you know, everything just fits into it. And the shower is the kitchen and so on. Uh, and and you get delivery Chinese to the window. And you do, which is amazing. Marty McFly's, uh, Marty McFly Senior's house in Back to the Future 2 because it's got a great TV set and that ph- phenomenal... Uh, what's it called? The, the rehydrator? Where you basically put a little tiny pizza in. I'd love that. I basically just want the gadgets from his house. I don't want to live in his house. Oh, and obviously Leatherface's house, which is which is full of character. Wrong. So, okay, good question there. Thanks, Nandy. Via Facebook. Someone's actually sent in a Facebook question. That's good. Um, Robert Fawn, not the Robert Fawn, uh, writes in to tell us the name of the guy who was originally cast as Bennett and Commando. Now, this relates to our Commando commentary in the recent issue of Empire of the One is on sale right now in the Arnold Schwarzenegger special, in which we have a commentary about the, the making of Commando and um, in it we reveal that there was originally before Vernon Wells another Bennett someone was cast as Bennett and they actually shot for a little while with him and then I think he turned out to be a little bit rubbish in the Eric Stoltz style uh, in terms of Back in the Future and they got rid of him and the director can't remember his name the writer can't remember his name Vernon Wells can't remember his name uh, but you had a picture of him in the, in the magazine and this guy Robert Fawn has written in to say his name is Lewis Van Bergen. Ooh. Yeah. Who wow. hasn't who hasn't acted since nineteen ninety nine, uh, at least on screen. So it's gonna be a bit tricky to track him down. We'll see if we can give it a go. 
You mentioned Arnie. Uh, I think it's fair to crowbar in a reference to our Arnie party, which took place last Sunday. Ain't no party like an Arnie party. Uh, where the Schwarzeneggerator, is that the right term? He <laughs> turned up so. to a party in Mayfair, because that's where he has his parties. And When in London, at least. Well, of course. And he uh, shook hands, met his fans, high-fived a bunch of people, and generally was a pretty cool guy. He gave a speech drank a few drinks and I gather that you Christopher Hewitt yes and a couple of others were privileged to be brought into a special meeting room where you chatted yeah well yeah chatted I can't remember a single thing he said to me but uh, I wore because you know I've wanted to meet him all my life and James Dyer managed to do that lucky get uh, but James was with us and uh, I wore my commando t-shirt I have a t-shirt with the commando bad guys their faces on it and the methods of dispatch and uh, I shook Arnold's hand and so it was a pleasure to meet you, sir. And then I went, look, I'm wearing a Commander T-shirt. It's probably not the coolest thing I've ever done. <laughs> it but probably he, is, actually. He looked at the T-shirt and he, he, he nodded in a way that meant, get me out of here. <laughs> this man's a psychopath. Uh, but it was it was great fun. Uh, and we got, you know, to have my picture taken with Arnold is completely unprofessional. And we, <laughs> I normally wouldn't do it. But, you, you know, sometimes, you know what? You just have to. You can check out a couple of pictures of uh, of the whole thing on Facebook, um, as well as I'll, I'll see if I can stick it on the news story that this uh, podcast is attached to. So do check mm-hmm. it out. Indeed. Uh, so thanks for that, Robert. We'll try and get in touch with Lewis Van Bergen and see if he has any memories of, of playing Bennett. Uh, here's another good one from Facebook and a guy called Peter Wood. Uh, I'm going to Lord of the Rings All-Nighter on the big screen to prepare for the release of The Hobbit. What film collection have you not watched in one sitting that you would most like to? Good question. I don't. I don't do very many sort of marathons anymore. So, I I can't remember the last time I watched, you know, a hu- a whole franchise back to back. So I might do. I might try it with the Marvels sometime. Maybe. Marvels is a good shout. Yeah. Marvels is a good shout. Uh, yeah. I, Ali. Spaghetti westerns would be mine. Uh, Sergio Leone's would be mine. I I, I watched in the uh, Prince Charles Cinema, which we're always bringing up, but uh, I watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly about three months ago and I thought to myself this would be really lovely to have all three together in one day that would really make my day seeing it on the widescreen on the big screen really makes a difference would you bold any other Leone movies on there or would you keep it strictly to the Eastwood stuff that's an interesting question I think it's whether you can stand the the heat sitting down wise if you can handle that much uh, buttock pressure for about <laughs> what it would be oh god I, I dare not think at least a whole day 12, 13 hours 14 hours if you're stuck in Once Upon a Time in the West Maybe. I'll see. I'll talk to them and we'll see what we can do. Of course, Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, at one point, almost could have been an, an addition to that uh, to that franchise. Because, of the, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the original plan was at the beginning of the movie when Charles Bronson is... You know, the, the three killers are waiting for Charles Bronson. And uh, they're Woody Strode and Jack Elam and... Oh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Um, at the beginning of the movie, and Leone's original plan was to have those three killers being played by Clint Eastwood, uh, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef. <gasps> and the idea would be that definitively Charles Bronson's harmonica would be faster than a man with no name and would blow him away and essentially put the seal on those movies but uh, for some reason Clint Eastwood wasn't up for doing that <laughs> so um, yeah it's about it's about length isn't it really because there are what 35 36 carry on movies you could never do those <laughs> you would that would, you be, would go mental yeah, halfway through yeah. you would go completely mental and you'd sure. have to finish with carry on Columbus oh god you would you couldn't you? do it that would be awful. I think it's impossible. If anyone out there really genuinely wants to attempt mm. it, um, please, please don't blame us. They're short. That's yeah. probably the only thing they've got going in for them. And, yeah. and and obviously some of them are really, really good. And then I just think you could be 70s, permanently damaged. You could do. Yeah, just please don't try this at home, kid. That's not a good one. Um, Police Academy. Mm. Same thing. Seven films. 
That's about 13, 14 hours. I'm not sure no. about that. I would do the Naked Guns. I'm surprised I haven't done that before, but I definitely would. In fact, there's a box set. It's Airplane, Airplane 2, Top Secret, The Three Naked Guns, and all the episodes from Files from the Police Squad. Oh my God, really? Um, so you can get it all in one box set. That's almost doable. I think that would be doable. See, I wonder if that's an overload of comedy. I think it could work. You might become comma-diabetic. I mean, admittedly, you'd have to watch Airplane 2, which I'm not a big fan of. I know you are, Chris. It's pretty good. But uh, but then you get Top Secret, so that'd be like a big high again. Hooray! And then you get Police Squad, which is great. And then Naked Gun, okay, you finish with Naked Gun 3, uh, 33 and a third, which isn't so good. But, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there, at least. <laughs> a lot of good stuff. Of course, you'd have to burst half the blood vessels in your fight. <laughs> well, that would be the uh, the risk. It's not ideal. I've done Star Wars, and of course, I've done Bond. Okay, if you want to get in touch with us, you can you can tweet us uh, on Twitter. Uh, we're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag uh, Empire Podcast. You can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. Or you can Facebook us. Look, Facebook works. Two questions this week from Facebook. Wow. So it does work. It's a brave well, new dawn. It is a brave new dawn. Uh, <laughs> if only more people started using Facebook. Uh, okay, competition time now. We have uh, two competitions this week. Two competitions. Uh, you can win House the Complete Series 1 to 8 on DVD and also an iRobot 3D Blu ray box set, which includes the Blu ray and the DVD in a collectible Sunny Head. Sunny was a robot played by Alan Tudyk. Is that correct? That is. Is it Tudyk or is it Tudyk or how does he pronounce uh, it? Tudyk, I think. Tudyk? You've yeah. met him, haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah. I interviewed him for iRobot, actually. Um, at a very posh hotel in London called the Lanesborough where he w- he took great delight in informing me that his room came with a butler and he's <laughs> like the first morning I was a bit freaked out when this guy turned up and wanted to iron my socks and now I don't know how I'm going to live with Ida when I go back to LA <laughs> so, The robot butler <laughs> Robot butler or Sadly butler? no that would have been really nicely themed but I believe it was a human That's a shame That's a shame uh, Okay so the ridiculously easy questions this week are uh, what's House MD's first name? Sherlock. <laughs> Indeed, Sherlock House. And the second question, who wrote the short story upon which iRobot was based? There you go. Fairly easy stuff. Uh, answers to the email address, please. That's podcast at empireonline.com with your name, your postal address, and your correct answer. So we can send you all the lovely stuff. Uh, last week, we offered you the chance to win two Blu-ray box sets of American Horror Story Season 1. The question was, name the character played by Francis Conroy. The answer was, of course, Moira O'Hara. Yes, we're taking over. Come on. Moira O'Hara. Uh, and the winners are <laughs> Craig <laughs> Craig Pendrell and Carl Wallace. Carl Wallace. The winners are Craig Pendrell and Carl Wallace. Congratulations to them both. Coming up after this, we talk to the Beast of Southern Wild director and star. Beasts of the Southern Wild is a low-budget eco-disaster movie. That sounded very grand. Beasts of the Southern Wild is a low-budget eco-disaster movie which manages to be both beguiling and beautiful and a potential dark horse for the Oscar race. It's a tale of a young girl called Hush Puppy and her struggle to survive with her father and a motley crew of, well, assorted people in New Orleans after a cataclysmic flood. It's co-written and directed by first-timer Ben Seitlin and it stars a brilliant newcomer, nine-year-old Quivenjanae Wallace, as Hush Puppy. And they both dropped in to talk to Dan Jolin... And this man on my left, Phil Dissemblin. Can you tell us a little bit about the casting process and working with Quivenge Janae and Dwight to... I gather Dwight was... He, he, he ran the bakery store that you kind of gone into, you know, on a daily basis when you were down there. And then suddenly you had a kind of epiphany that he had something. What is that something? And, and more so, what did you spot in Quivenge Janae's sort of performance and audition? 
Um, I mean, when, we, when we're looking, when we're when we're casting, we're not looking for like a resume or even a specific set of skills. It's more about trying to find people that really speak to the spirit of the movie. And I, and I would say that Dwight, you know, in real life, has this incredible. Uh, he's incredibly strong, incredibly warm. He has this whole community around him in this bakery, and and he has this belief in himself that he can do anything, you know, and, and overcome anything. And I think that those qualities related to the character. Um, which is a starting point. And then the further than that, you have to see if he can actually completely transform himself and act. And when we saw that he had talent there too, we just thought, you know, his life plus his, his abilities are going to be able to create this character. And, you know, I would say, you know, as similar things for Quivenjane, you know, she, uh, she has this, kind of fierceness and this wisdom and the sweetness at the same time that that really make up um who hush puppy is and and then on top of that you know she you know it acts so well that oftentimes you know if she had to play a scene on set where she was supposed to be scared the first take i would cut the scene because i thought she'd really be scared and then she'd immediately start laughing at me and making fun <laughs> of me so you know i heard that she can um burp on cue as well is that true <laughs> there we go. Yeah. We got the hiccups. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, yeah. So, how was the actual shoot itself? Was it a tough one? I mean, it looked like it could be quite hard work. How was it for you? Fun <laughs> yeah. and kind of difficult for the long lines and the stuff that I had to really focus in and go for and stay with. There's fun stuff and magical stuff, but there's, you know, there's there's a lot of tough drama there as well and very emotional moments. Um, you know, how how were those to, to deal with? Um, you know, we try to keep the world offset. You know, we always try to make a real distinction between the scenes that we were playing and, and what was going to happen after we said cut. You know, um, the, the environment in the set was always a place that was fun and that felt like a game. And so it was important that we not be, you know, method acting or anything mm. like that. So we would be fooling around and, you know, you see the raw footage and she's laughing and dancing and playing with the other kids. And then we have a moment where we say, okay, let's focus. And she just drops into character. And so it was important that yeah. we could step out of that drama and back into a place that was safe and fun. Hmm. I mean, Ben, for, for you, uh, I was when I was watching it, I saw possible influences there or things that it reminded me of other filmmakers. So I, the list in my head were like Vincent Ward and Terry Gilliam, John Sayles, Terence Malick and Werner Herzog. I mean, for you, were the, those the kind of guys... I'm not, I'm not saying it's derivative in any way, but were those the, those the kind of people that influenced and inspired you or... or have I just got it totally wrong? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I think I think certainly you know Herzog and and Sales and um, I, I mean I think that in general I I always loved movies and I love movies of all kinds. You know I'm not you know into just the kind of movies that I make. I grew up on action movies and Disney movies and, right. and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but but yeah, I mean people like Herzog and and um, like Sales who you sense that there's an adventure behind the making of the film and there's an yeah. exploration happening in the life of the filmmaker um, as opposed to just what the story is about. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's really inspired me to want to do this is that um, that making movies was a way to kind of explore the world and get to lead a life of, uh, you know, to kind of, you get to write a story and you get to live it, you know, and, yeah. and so filmmakers that do that um, are the ones that really kind of, I watch them and I thought, oh, this is what I, I want to do with my, with my day. Right. It reminded me a little bit, and I don't know if this is bogus comparison, but of Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep in the sense that it's a film about 
poverty and joy kind of mixed together in a way that you really rarely see. And I know that when you went down to New Orleans, it was used, the first day of shooting is the BP oil slick happened, yeah. which was obviously something that was covered over here extensively and, mm-hmm. and looked like another kind of massive seismic wound in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did that kind of, did your film become a bit of a focal point for the way that Louisianans were kind of seeing life at that point at all, or is that putting it too strongly? <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> like we were the things we were so far off the grid you know I don't think that we were on anybody's radar nobody knew we were making the film it was really made in the most remote part of the state which is where the oil spill was happening as well right. um, so did you see the side effects of that when you were down there yeah I mean I mean, the oil spill happened the first day of our shoot and so and, and we were in a town that was probably the closest to deep water um, and so we would wake up every morning and track where the oil was and it got within five miles of our town and had it gotten in all the way it could have ended fishing in that town and if it had ended wow. the fishing in that town that would be the end of the town and so it really felt like the story of the town was being reflected in real life and it i think it added a weight to what we were doing that you know we felt i mean you you felt like you could possibly be capturing the last images of this place as we were shooting it and thankfully you know um that hasn't happened and the town once again has been able to bounce back and and is still holding on there but um but you you sensed very viscerally like how tenuous um life is there right at the edge of the of the, of the land you're a queens boy originally aren't you yeah new yorker <laughs> did Quivengine show you the ropes in louisiana and teach you some other kind of local traditions and and show you around or you've been down there for a while before obviously you started shooting i guess yeah yeah i've been i mean i've been living in louisiana for about six years um so no um, basically (laughs) well yeah yeah since uh you know um but uh but that said, you know, every element of the film was like a real collaboration and, and getting the voice of that character was something that we worked on together. And, um, you know, every line in the movie, I would ask her, how would you say this? Because, you know, you know, we don't speak the same. It's like I speak like a guy from Queens and she speaks like a girl from Louisiana. So I had to make sure right. that, um, you know, that the lines felt like they were natural for her to say and like she understood them. And so we would sit with my computer and delete lines and she would retype them. And <laughs> that, that was like a nightly process for us to to get the language of the film right. She demanding a screenwriting credit. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should. You should. Um, there's been... Oscars talk obviously and we, we would love to sort of talk. it's a bit of a kind of poison chalice for you because you probably don't want to be talking about the Oscars <laughs> it's a long way away and it's, yeah. and it's never like what can you say but there's been talk of the, the Screen Actors Guild and I wonder if you could just clarify the state of play from, from your point of view on that um, yeah well as far as I know the, you know the Screen Actors Guild is doesn't have anything to do with the you know it's like the Screen Actors Guild is like an internal award that they give within the union and uh, you know obviously because we were casting first time actors they weren't in the union and so it's sort of like a technicality that uh, disqualifies us for that one but I don't think that has anything to do with the Oscars as far as I know no sure but I mean obviously you were caring for your cast and making sure that they were well oh yeah 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 I mean yeah yeah there's no there's no sort of suggestion no it just I mean it's just the film was really truly made outside of the industry in every level like our producers had never produced a film i'd never directed one or dp had never shot one the actors had never acted before it was like really really you know uh sort of ragtag production and so you know it's sort of like 
we were like the street stickball team and then you kind of get into the you know major league playoffs and they're like you weren't using the right kind of bat right like, <laughs> yeah i know but you know um like the natural in the sense. yeah you know it just we, we were we were we were figuring it out as we went along and, and the fact that we're on this stage at all is so crazy uh so it's you know for us it's i mean you feel like you're uh, sort of gate crashing a stiff old party a bit in that sense i don't know no i mean i feel like we're being invited to the palace or something you know it's like it's an honor you know yeah you're not newcomers anymore and i know court 13 your your collective i guess is a collective from from wesleyan alumni named um, after a squash court is a squash court so? yeah it, it started in a squash court it's it's sort of yeah it's kind of it's gone pretty far beyond that now but that was the origin was uh was working on this animated film in this abandoned squash court at wesleyan yes and um, they're going to rename it in, in, in the honor of your I don't think it exists anymore. I How's think it gone? I think that we, we probably uh, caused that building to be condemned. Um, you know, uh, but no, I mean, I, th- I think it was slated for demolition. That's why we were able to use it. So okay. I'm sure I haven't been back to Wesleyan in a little while, but... Uh, it wasn't like people were turning up with squash rackets going, can we, do you mind if we kind of... <laughs> well, they were, they were in the other part of the, the downstairs was still functional. So anytime we needed to blow off steam animating, we could go downstairs and play some squash. So yeah, <laughs> awesome. that happened. Um, but you guys, you're doing another film together, aren't you? You're 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 gearing up something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's you know we're it's really like a multi multidisciplinary uh, collective, and so there's a lot of different projects happening in music, and we're oh. developing theater and, and art shows, and, and other films are are being developed too. But um, you know, also my next film is definitely going to be made with the same group of people um, in Louisiana with the same kind of uh, you know approach to it. So you know, okay. we consider this to be like the first the first thing, and hopefully it'll be the first in like a long line of court 13 productions right and are you two going to be working together again then I hope so. On, if on she ever, time? if she ever stops having She's hiccups, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if she keeps, if she keeps on hiccuping forever, I'd have to write a character that hiccups all the time into the next film. What do you think about that? Yeah. Is it Princess if Bride? I can keep working with you. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Right. Um, I think we have to kind of wrap it up there. Um, but it's been a great pleasure to have you guys in, and I mean, we just love this film so much. So I hope that it finds a massive audience and yeah. um, what do you I guess to wrap to give you guys the final word what would you hope that people take away from from seeing Beast of the Southern World um, you know I always I always hope that it's sort of like spreads like a folk song you know it, it really was intended to be this um, kind of universal anthem about home and about sort of your roots and holding on to your family and your history and and it's got these very universal themes in it and i sort of you know the way that you know the way that a folk song can sort of um go all over the world be changed in each place it goes to be re-sung in different ways and that it becomes this sort of you know uh universal thing and that people think about you know hush puppy as they as they go through life that would be kind of a dream you know that she's this hero kind of like huck finn or indiana jones or one of these people that you kind of think of as yeah that's a hush puppy thing to do or a hush puppy way to think and that that sort of uh sticks with you so i I hope that character sticks in the culture that'd be amazing thank you both so much for coming in thank you best of luck thanks cheers lovely people yeah i had um i'll be honest here i (laughs) i interviewed uh ben and last week at the apple store and i'd spent the whole day practicing 
the pronunciation of Quivenginay's name. I was literally going, Quivenginay, 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 Quivenginay. And then I get on stage and I go, please welcome the director, Ben Seitlin. And then my mind just went blank. And I went, and Quivenginay, Quivenginay Wallace. Oh, God. But then to compound it, I actually had this this spiel in my head and I was going through my spiel that I pre-remembered. And I was going, Quivenginay Wallace. Remember that name? She's going to be a big star. And I like, How can you remember that name? <laughs> I may have you just made it up. Uh, but we knew that she, her, her, uh, she's known as Maisie by her nearest and dearest. Yes. And her mum said it was fine to call her Maisie, just not on the air. Oh, really? Yeah, so okay. damn. <laughs> Quivenginay. It's so not it's, so hard once you do it. A, it's a lovely times. name, but uh, yeah. Uh, I can say it now. Quivenginay. Nice. See? Easy. On stage, no, not so much. Uh, but yes, they they were fantastic. Uh, she she had this. She'd just come to the um, the Apple Store Q and A from M and M World, which is in <laughs> Leicester Square, and like a whole <laughs> bags full of M and M merchandise or M M&M and merchandise, and uh, including a M and M dispenser. And she was blithely handing out peanuts. Didn't ask if anyone had allergies. <gasps> Dangerous. Danger. This is a girl who lives on the edge. Danger. Okay, it's time for some uh, movie news now. Ali, let's start with you. Uh, I have two relatively bite-sized uh, nuggets of newsdom uh, for you today. Uh, the first one is that Edgar Wright's Ant-Man gets uh, a release date. It has been announced Ooh. that uh, Ant-Man will be hitting cinemas in November, the 6th of November, in fact, 2015. Wow. So that is... Let's three three out. years away. Three whole years away. It's also confirmed in that way that it will be after the Avengers. Yes. So the question is, will Ant-Man be in any way part of the Avengers 2? I'd say almost certainly not with this news but I would be, say almost certainly yes you think so you think it'll mm. be introduced in Avengers 2 and then the like a Hawkeye style cameo maybe I think that's what I think that's what will happen and then it'll be an origin story who knows who knows but it'll be interesting to uh, to talk to Edgar about this because I imagine this, um, this makes it his next film after The World's End which comes out next August and then it'll be two years to go into Ant-Man effects heavy so I imagine he'll take two years to do that one and what's going to be interesting about it is because he's been on this movie for almost a decade now and it started off as obviously a very much a standalone thing when Marvel Studios didn't even exist. And now I'd just like to talk to him and see about how he can, has he had to integrate this into the wider Marvel Universe? And has it affected how he and Joe Cornish, who wrote the script, have approached Ant Man? Does he have to hang out with Joss Whedon to, you know, oh, work out the details? It's a real hardship, isn't it? Oh, it must be awful. <laughs> <laughs> Helen's had a, got a dreamy face on now. Um, what, what else you got? My, my other thing is um, that the after we discovered that uh, Seth MacFarlane is going to be hosting the Oscars mm-hmm. next year, two other newcomers will be hosting the Golden Globes, namely Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Now, they've previously worked together many, many, many times on Saturday Night Live and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, they've also presented stuff at the Emmys before, I think, two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. So they're used to this kind of stuff. They look great and they are very funny mm-hmm. and it's a nice change from Ricky Gervais who's been doing the same <laughs> let's be honest tired old shtick for three <laughs> years going you're all rubbish haha <laughs> I'm British so this will be a nice change for me I think <laughs> quite like Ricky Gervais's shtick first time out certainly yeah the 47th time it becomes a little yeah, old I guess um, I'd much rather have uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler so yeah. I'm very happy about this because we, we've seen Tina Fey especially present stuff at the Oscars over the last couple of years and mm-hmm. I, I remember every time in your blow by blow blog you're going yeah she should host the Oscars and it, to me this is one of the, the rare instances where the Golden Globes seem to be smarter and more plugged in than the Oscars 
because um, usually you know, Golden Globes, of course, is run by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Uh, I, I shadowy cabal with a combined age of ten million. Uh, I think there's, there's about, seven of them. There's seven of them. <laughs> yeah, they are beyond ancient. They are run by Pazuzu, uh, Imhotep, and five others, I think. And uh, usually they're horribly, horribly out of touch. Um, but this, I think, shows they've they've they're, they're plugged in. They're plugged in. Also, uh, you know, Tina Fey, Thirty Rocks about to finish. So. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm seeking uh, counselling, it's fine. But yeah, I'm happier with this than I am with the idea of Seth MacFarlane doing the Oscars. Hey, do you remember oh, the time he did the Oscars? The, he'll be good at the song and dance routines, at least. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> what have you got for us? <laughs> uh, well, I have uh, news about uh, a Stephen King adaptation. I, I know you're a fan of Stephen King. I am. Um, Scott Derrickson is going to be tackling the one remaining unadapted story from the Different Seasons collection. <laughs> now, this, this collection is only four sort of novellas, and it's it's so far given us Stand By Me, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Less Storied Apt <laughs> Pupil. So The Breathing Method is the story. It's set in the 1930s. It's told in sort of um, memoir form by a doctor uh, who's re- relating the story at his club one night uh, about uh, a, w- a young woman, unmarried woman, who's pregnant, which was obviously a big deal in the 30s, and she comes to him looking for help, and uh, he teaches her, her his kind of version of the Lamaze method of, you know, the sort of crazy breathing you're supposed to do when you're giving birth, and so she's been kind of learning this um, going up to the birth, but on as she goes into labour there's an accident on the way to the hospital and things go a bit wrong and there's a decapitation Um, and I honestly don't uh, that's not a spoiler that's kind of the premise of the story Mm -hmm. basically Um, I honestly don't know though how you're going to turn this into a feature length story it's going to be interesting to see how they manage that Uh, Scott Derrickson is the guy directing he's obviously got Sinister in cinemas at the moment at least in the US and uh, previously did things like The Exorcism of Emily Rose he's got a guy called Scott Teams writing this who wrote and directed That Evening Sun with Hal Holbrook a couple of years ago Um, so it's interesting Uh, do we expect another Shawshank probably not but we can hope for not another apt pupil (laughs) It has its good moments, actually, after people. Um, moments, sure. It has its moments. Interesting enough, we did a Stephen King uh, Different Seasons uh, special uh, about a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, in the magazine. And we did long features on Stand By Me, um, long features on After People, focusing on uh, Brad Renfro, mm-hmm. and um, a long feature on Shawshank Redemption. And we did a sidebar, a fairly involved sidebar, talking about the breathing method, why it hasn't been made into a film and essentially came to the conclusion having interviewed a few people that it was unfilmable mm. so it's going to be interesting to see what Scott Erickson the two Scots do with this Indeed. because it, you know, I think they're going to have to change the story tremendously drastically yeah. I'd say yes but uh, be interesting to see what happens it's one of the, the great I guess un, unshot King stories along with uh, the Richard Bachman tale The Long Walk which I know Frank Darabont had the rights to I don't know whether he has anymore but uh, that's fantastic and if you haven't read it check it out what you got? Well, we all live in London, most of us. We love films. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody organised some form of collective film-going experience, say a festival, and it would just take place right now, and guess what it is? The London Film Festival is on. Okay. Um, ah. That was convoluted intro to say that <laughs> we're in the middle of an absolute maelstrom of movies, and... Uh, uh, Claire Stewart is the new um, the new London Film Festival director and she she's promised to ramp up the London Film Festival this year and she really has it's sort of geographically spread the the movies have uh, programme has been upped as well 
And, uh, it's still in London now, right? It is still in London, <laughs> but it's more sort of geographically egalitarian, should we say. There's cinemas around, around outside of the West End that are showing films. Okay. Um, and it feels like a more of a populist, if that's the right word, festival this year. It just feels like something people are more involved in. Uh, in terms of Helen's pulling a face, yeah. I look. I'm, but in I'm terms speaking... of film choice, I thought it, it wasn't terribly popular. No, no, no. I'm, of... I don't mean in terms of the film choices, but just in terms of it actually getting out to sure. to the to the. Well, unlike the... a lot of other film festivals, it is open to the public, which is one of the things that makes it stand out. Exactly. So last night I went to see Argo at a gala gala premiere stroke screening. Ben Affleck was there, Brian Cranston, John Goodman, um, and an audience of you know genuine movie lovers. Um, it was a you know got a great reception, spontaneous round of applause. Mm. Um, Rust and Bone there's some scuttlebutt that uh, a couple had to be prized apart at one point during the screening it's not an immediate immediate film that screams aphrodisiac sorry sorry a couple were thrown out for having sex in a screening of Rust and Bone what he was trying to be nice about it Chris was it two killer whales or or what I, I don't know if the killer whales no I don't think it was killer whales is it, is All the, the killer whales on screen that were yeah, responsible the, the LFF for this. isn't that inclusive. We haven't brought Orca into the cinema, Chris. Okay, hang on. Is this because people really like Katy Perry's Firework? Or in which case, watch out during Madagascar 3. Um, but what? I hadn't heard that. It's really? True. Yeah, true story. True story. I don't have any of the details. I wasn't there. Is this um, all because... I promise. Uh, he thinks the lady <laughs> I was in Thrust and Bona next door. Uh, no, I, I don't know the absolute ins and outs of that one. Um, <laughs> there are so many euphemisms. Sorry, there are so many double entendres. <laughs> I know. It's a quadruple entendre. A step, a step away. Um, so those are some of the things that have happened at the London Film Festival this week. Some of them more programmed than others. Um, it started with Frank and Weenie, Tim Burton and his Tell me there was no sex during Frank and Winnie. No. None that we know No, it's a family film, Chris. And ends with a, with a film that the couple from Rust and Bone might, might find prescient. Great Expectations um, <laughs> on Sunday. And I have um, been lucky enough to go to a few things. I know Ali was at Empire's first ever gala screening of yeah. Lies. First ever gala screening. Lies Autobiography. The untrue story of... Monty Python's Graham Chapman. Monty Python's Graham Chapman. I'm paraphrasing the title. How was that? It was utterly wonderful. I really enjoyed it. I'm a massive Python nut, but not in the way like uh, John Hanna was in uh, Sliding Doors. Nobody expects the Spanish. Shut up. Um, <laughs> really enjoyable. Michael Palin was there. I love him. Yeah. And uh, that uh, Terry Jones fellow was there as well. And his son, who directs, obviously. Bill yeah. Jones, the family yeah. affair. Yeah. So that was enjoyable. Also, they had some kind of, you know, uh, footlights wannabes uh, running around the uh, cinema before the screening, uh, dressed as... Uh, Brave Brave Sir Robin and so on clapping their coconuts and all that kind of whatnot and yeah it was lovely I really enjoyed it uh, the premise is that there was a series of tapes that were recorded by Graham Chapman before he passed away in 1989 I believe of throat cancer and they kind of take that and got a whole bunch of uh, animators not all entirely from Shoreditch but almost exclusively and got them to recreate certain sections of his life through animation and it's utterly bonkers and rather beautiful and it was a great pleasure to be there I was sitting next to Julian Barrett I think is how you pronounce his name mm-hmm. and um, a couple of other famous folks so I enjoyed that and they had a choir they a men's a- choir tell the us about that London Gay Men's Choir isn't it that's right yeah they sang Sit On My Face which if you know Monty Python's musical back catalogue is possibly the most pure of the lot so I was sitting there next to my girlfriend as yeah it was just fantastic <laughs> in other words it was wonderful I was proud to be part of Empire and I was very pleased that Empire 
had that as its cult screening. That's yeah. pretty cool. And no, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have many more in years to come. I think it's been great. I mean, yeah, the programme, we were a little, I don't know, nonplussed. We weren't mega plussed by it. Yeah. But I think that we weren't nonplussed, but we weren't plussed. We weren't super plussed. But yeah. it looks, but there's been some great films, you know, Beast of the Southern Wild, Rust and Bone, Argo, R screening. I saw Thomas Vinterberg's The Hunt light and fluffy stuff on Saturday mm. night Mike Lee was there in attendance you know it's that sort of thing you feel really connected to the London and the UK film industry yeah. at this event And I think one of the criticisms that's been levelled at the LFF over the, the, the last few years has been that a lot of the films have been seen elsewhere before they hit our shores and that's, that, that's true to a very large extent but I also quite like the vibe of the LFF mm. I like the idea that you know it, it, the whole city doesn't revolve around it you know, we go to Cannes everything revolves around the film festival and it get a little bit tiring. Whereas, whereas with this, you can go about your day, do your daily thing and then pop down to the cinema and have, you know, be a walk on the red carpet with George Clooney who wasn't here this year, was he? Did he, did he, did he come in? Usually he's a staple. Yeah, no, right? George Clooney, no. Unbelievable, George. <clears throat> but he produced Argo. What was he doing? Ben Affleck thanked him last night um, and uh, John Goodman um, uh, well, asked what, what drew him to the film, said that he'd hoped to meet Matt Damon. <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> was disappointed that that hadn't actually materialised okay. um, but no but Bill Murray was there so that's uh, that's more than a good thing fantastic and there was no sex in the Monty Python no you know what <laughs> I'm going to have to go and double check because I'm now remembering noises that would make sense I'm going to say no okay excellent thank you for saying no <laughs> yes indeed uh, time now for another dynamic duo uh, Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara another O'Hara we're taking over I told you uh, the long-time friends and brilliant comedians are currently starring together in Tim Burton's Frank and Weenie, and they pop by for a chat with myself and not Helen O'Hara, because that would have been an O'Hara overload, uh, Ollie Richards, and watch us try, desperately try and keep up with two of the best improvisers in the business. Uh, we're joined in the booth by uh, Martin Short, Catherine O'Hara, stars of Frank and Weenie. We're delighted to have you, although slightly terrified, because you've probably been asked every single question about this film under the sun oh it's not possible it must be possible yes we have we now it's now every answer is scripted <laughs> yes. and we're setting it, we're casting now for the touring company of this junket <laughs> so we'll now leave the room and you'll just go through your prepared answers correct <laughs> and then we'll be done now ask a question and I will only buzz if I've heard it before okay well, oh I like this hmm okay so what's your red carpet technique you're, you're, doing, you're doing red carpet today correct because it's a premiere it's the Open Sea LFF today the 56th BFI London Film Festival wow. congratulations do you have a red carpet technique do you, do you walk straight down the red carpet do you engage with fans how do you approach that sort of stuff it, it depends if how much Purell I have on me <laughs> <laughs> I certainly yes, or how I, many cold sores you have <laughs> kissing a full mouth kiss I tend to do to strangers which is I think pretty cool yeah and I know I will engage. Yeah. Hi, how are you doing? Fake a smile on my face and <laughs> um, pose. You know, the secret is to always look like you're looking over a fence. Okay. For the jawline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Wow, is that is that self-taught? Or is there like a manual that you get given? No, a little actor named Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm going to guess that you two probably didn't actually see each other during the making of this film, did you? We did once. We did. Oh, okay, you did. That's, no, rare, that's rare for doing voices. More than once. Yeah. yeah, we kind of overlapped a couple of times, but the only time we recorded together was as the Frankensteins. Okay, but, you, but tell us about when you originally met, because am I right that you worked together at Second City? Correct. Yes, but I met 
Marty, before that one, I went to see him in Godspell. Oh, I see. Seventeen-year-old Irish lass, Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> Katie O'Hara. <laughs> I went to see Mr. Martin <laughs> yes. in Godspell, and uh, because I knew Gilda Radner, God bless her, mm. she had gotten a friend of mine to and me tickets. Um, she invited us to lunch with the cast afterwards. And we got to sit beside Marty. And then for weeks afterwards, I kissed his picture in the program. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a particularly handsome, dashing picture? No, but you, if you saw the Marty. picture now, you'd think, oh, that poor blind girl. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cute with his little hat off to the side. Yeah, Looking cheery, you know, we, when you were young and you tried to look funny in pictures? Yeah. Now you know you just want, now you've learned that you just want to look handsome and beautiful. <laughs> but in those days, you'd be, yeah, what kind of face do you want? Yeah. You know, so sad. Now you, well, now you say, it. how many kills do I get? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my uh, airbrush guy? <laughs> yeah. You photoshopped the shit out of Oh shoot! How did that? I just did that. That's all right. You, you can say I know it's a oh, family film, but we're so we're incredibly puerile on this podcast. Yeah, so you yeah. can swear it's Thrill. fine. Yeah. Most listeners Thrill. are children, but they got filthy minds, so it's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Interview with Rusty Warren. I know, really. Yeah. Bounce you. So, did she tell you this story when when you actually met? Oh yeah, I've heard this story many times. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, but delighted with it, of course, because he was there, but he didn't see me. He does have to be told the story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, were you in the room? No, I only. Enough about me. What do you think of me? Was his line? <laughs> I, 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 but I, I met the beautiful Catherine when she was seventeen, and, and I've known her now for what ten years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Very nice. <laughs> and when you're when you're doing something like this, do you have a range of voices that you pick from, or does it just naturally come when you see the character? No, it doesn't naturally come. I mean, I think no. that you experiment a great deal, and that's why Tim is 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 so wonderful to work with because he's he's kind of saying now what do you what do you mm. let's let's try different things, and then when he hears something that makes him really laugh, you know, you're the right. So, yeah, and I don't feel like I may be kidding myself, but I don't feel like we did these voices before. No, well, no, I don't we think so. We certainly didn't play these characters no, because we never had these illustrations not. done for us before. And you were doing three, weren't you? Yes. I I'm, think I'd remember Weird Girl. Yeah, I've never done that voice <laughs> before. No. He brought something new out of us. Yeah. And that's a lovely thing for us. She was a good voice. She's a strange character. Isn't she? I know, it's a weird, weird girl, girl, obviously. <laughs> but oh, she I really takes that to the highest possible level it can go, I think. I love the idea that everyone calls her weird girl, but she doesn't know it. Yeah, bless her. <laughs> and and uh, has no idea the impression she's making on others. Yeah. I like I, her, though. Her cat's odd. Oh, I love her. Uh, Martin Landau said today he talked about how Tim directed him on Ed Wood which of course resulted in him winning an Oscar and essentially yeah. it was just yeah that thing do that and yeah that was good yeah, yeah more yeah. of that is that essentially how he directs you guys as well do you have a shorthand now having worked with him before no even the first after Beetlejuice I remember saying that he directed through osmosis <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's that, I don't mean to demean what he does. Yeah. Osmosis is a very beautiful thing. It's you absolutely know. wonderful. Um, but he does somehow get through to you in in a completely original way. Mm. But you are definitely being directed by him and he's guiding you and you know you're in great, safe, creative hands and you, you know, uh, live by his every word. But uh, it's hard to repeat what he said. But you just know, yeah, you just know what he, or you hope you know what, he, what he's asking you to do. Because Martin, you worked with him in Mars Attacks, by which point he was... Tim Burton. Right. I'm doing air quotes for people who can't say. Well, that's Catherine, what he uh, introduced yeah. me. Yeah. He does. I am Tim Burton. <laughs> well, the. He says the. The, <laughs> the Esquire, yeah. Sometimes I mean, it's just the. <laughs> 
Um, but you worked with him on Beetlejuice when he was very much an unknown quantity. Mm-hmm. So did he have to? Did you have to have any persuasion at all that this guy, who looks essentially like one of his own drawings, did you did you <laughs> have the sense that this guy could actually do what he was hoping to achieve with this film, this this weird script? And only once we started, yeah, did I did I get that? Oh wow, he's really good. Well, I mean, I didn't know him before that, and I'd been sent the script and. David Geffen, I think, was one of the producers, and and he would call me at home in Toronto, and be telling me that I should work on this movie, and that we should work together. And who is? I'm so ignorant. Who is this guy? <laughs> you know, and stop bothering me. <laughs> and um, and uh, and then he set it up. He finally. This is David Geffen. Yes. Isn't this funny? I've never had this conversation with him. Said I swear he used to call me like every second night, in my home in Toronto. And you didn't, didn't know who know. David Geffen was? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not that bright. Oh, I'm terrible that way. Um, ignorance is bliss, apparently. And and uh, and then finally, I got convinced to come to LA and meet him. And as I said, I lost my way. Yeah. This guy is so far from where show business happens. I don't know who he is, but and then, but really worked in my favor because I went back to Toronto and I got offered the part mm. instead of meeting him. And I probably would have blown it if I'd met him. <laughs> so I did. So no, I had no clue. And I also misread the script and, and pictured for some reason. I guess maybe Deliverance had come out not be long before that. I pictured Ned Beatty playing. Beetlejuice, and it seemed just lecherous that's, at the time. And see, so no, I hate to reveal wow. my ignorance, but that's that weird alternative casting. I, I, Isn't it? Yeah. I know. It would change the film Tim a lot. I think. Yeah, I think you, <laughs> yeah. I, I love Ned Beatty, but I think you may have just ruined Beetlejuice for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, go see Michael Keaton do it. It'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. So no, I I didn't have a clue until I was watching him work, and and also just being with him. He's really fun to work with. Mm. He's got a great sense of humor, and he just brings out the best in everyone. And uh, this film is Tim sort of redoing a story that he did uh, at the beginning of his career. Is there anything from the beginning of your careers that you'd like to go back and do over? Oh, well, that's yeah, cool. That's a good question, but um, I—that's a very good question. <laughs> Never heard it before. Eh? No, no. You know, so what you haven't? Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, we're stunned. I'll tell you why I'm not going to answer that question because, uh, first of all, I don't really find it terribly interesting. Also, no, I don't. I'm not going to do it because um, it would affect other people's work and other directors it would comment I on see. other um, elements of that no so. you're afraid somebody's going to go back and watch that work that you reference and say yeah he's right oh no no he uh, really I, needs another chance at this yeah but it doesn't necessarily ref- reflect someone else's work it might just be that you felt that you hadn't given everything you can Oh, then I... That's never happened. That's not happened. Remy's never happened. Absolutely has. I got a list. No, you, you, you. What would you... What would you, you answer that? I'm scared. I don't want to bring it up for anyone else to... There you go. To, yeah. Mm, well, I know. No, you know uh, there are a couple of jobs I wish I had done. a movie, hmm. it still reflects on the director because the director could have had other options, but he picked those options and therefore you're insulting that director. You're very diplomatic. Thank you so much. Very diplomatic. God bless you. And this might reveal a fearful way of living, but um, I don't regret any of the jobs I didn't do. But I do regret a couple that I did. That's interesting. So there's nothing that that you could have done that you'd said no to that you wish you had in retrospect? No. Wow. Maybe I'm just belligerent that way. Sophie's Choice? I think you would have been so... Just not... Not funny. Throw mom? (laughs) Not serious. Enough. 
<laughs> so you're kind of the Goldilocks of movies. It's got to be just right, somewhere in the middle. Goldilocks, thank you. <laughs> I've been called a lot of things. Wow. How dare you, At least you put golden before that. You didn't say cow. <laughs> Not at all. I never would. I never would. So you were both saying just before we started recording that you're both from um, very big families. Do you think this is kind of why you lean towards comedy? The kind of if you don't make any noise, then you won't be heard? Absolutely. If you don't have a bit or a joke, you're not getting hurt at the table, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. I mean, or in my case also, I was the youngest, so it was trickle-down comedy. Everyone was funny in the family. And, uh, you know, I just kind of copied my siblings. But I, being the youngest, had was given so much confidence. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's so cute. No, don't put him down. <laughs> uh, I thought I was about 30. And, um, and so now I was, I, I expected people to cheer. That's what happened when I, you know, to the table. And, um, but doing their bits. Uh, was it the same for you, Catherine? No, that's so great. Where do I you, love that. Where do you, you come really in, You really do have that confidence. I love it. So where do you... So you're one of seven, I'm yes? second youngest. Second youngest. Youngest okay. girl, second youngest kid. Yeah. Uh, no, just everyone was funny in my family, too. And is. And um, it was a way to get attention at the table. Uh, but no, I was not that special in my family. I was more uh, uh, desperate to get attention, so I worked harder, you know. It wasn't. It wasn't given to me <laughs> on a silver platter like Mr. <laughs> like Lord Fauntleroy. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Martin. You're up against yourself next week at the box office because Madagascar three opens here as well. Yes. So, do you have a particular dog in this fight, or are you happy? That, are you hoping that they both have exactly the same gross at the, at the end of the weekend? I hope Great Britain appreciates both <laughs> aspects of Marty. <laughs> Madagascar 3 Marty and Frank and Winnie Marty. <laughs> Marty. Marty. <laughs> Britain and the United Kingdom in general. Thank you very much, sir. We've got it to carry on. I'm sure we like will. That. I know. I'm sure we will. Yes. Again with the diplomacy there. Thanks. Very Thanks. indeed. So you've got some, uh, you've got some, Sorry, I thought you were interrupting me. Yeah, I was just going. To, I think it's the last question. So, oh, so wow, be good. God, that's put, yeah. oh, that's put extra pressure. I was just going to ask what you're doing in London. Don't uh, forget. Yeah, that's true. This isn't, this isn't heat radio. <laughs> yeah, that we're yeah. This is just their their studio that we use. Oh, it's fine as well. Oh, again, it's, it's like swearing. Time. I say the wrong thing over and over. No swearing. You fine. have a good edit team. We have a fantastic that curly haired guy. He's our edit team. The dwarf. He's our, yeah. yeah. He has to get a special step to be let up. But. <laughs> Special yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's really very Otherwise good. Otherwise, he can't I reach it. it. With all the utilities I have at my beckoning. <laughs> He's got a long stick that he hits the buttons with. As editor, I've cut the tape, and I believe it's finished now. Because I believe it's finished now. I have no questions that can follow that. Yeah, I think that, I think that might be an opportune time to say thank you very much thank for coming. Thank you very much. Catherine O'Hara and Martin Short. I hope you had questions that, that pleased you. You're okay. good. Yeah. And all different. Oh you can tell God. by how stunned we were uh, at yeah. the end of your questions. <laughs> how stunned into silence we were. Well, yeah. Wait a minute. I have how dare this answer. Yeah. <laughs> if we'd gone on one more minute, it would have been just re yeah. yeah. What for you is cinema. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You wait, they'll go outside now. They'll say those questions, millions. I think now we have to take you upstairs uh, for some photographs. 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 Lovely, lovely people. You'd be glad to know she kept the O'Hara name 
Um, yeah. Thank thank goodness, yeah, because you know I've been worried about her. <laughs> She's been letting the side yeah. down for, well, for many years, you know. being successful and all that. <laughs> uh, okay, in a bumper week for uh, movies, it's Frank and Weenie where we're going to begin. It's Tim Burton's black and white 3D stop motion expansion of a live action short he made back when he was at Disney in 1984. And he was a lowly animator at the time, and he made Frank and Weenie and Vincent, and they fired him uh, because Weird. they were too dark uh, for Disney at the time. Now, of course, he's back at the mouse house with this tale of a young boy whose beloved dog, Sparky, is run over by a car, but that won't stop Victor Frankenstein. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. As Jesse Pinkman might say, science, yeah, or yeah, magnets, or magnety science, or something. Um, sooner or later, Sparky is back from the dead, and that's only the start of Victor's troubles. Uh, what are our thoughts on this one? I rather enjoyed this, I have to say. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's a weird thing to see an animated movie in black and white. It takes a little bit of getting used to, especially a, a stop motion one. Um, and it's also weird uh, that well, it's just weird, isn't it? I mean, there's actually a character <laughs> called Weird Girl in it, you yeah. know. But it's also, I mean, it's it's steeped in the kind of classic horror movies, you know, from the Universal Horrors of the 30s right through. You know, there's so many touches and little nods to some of Burton's favourites and, and I guess the animator's favourites in there as well mm. that, you know, kids can watch it and get one thing out of it and if you're a horror nut, you're going to watch it and have a completely different experience and be laughing at things that the kids know nothing about. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I, I caught all the references. I'm sure I caught a bite a hundredth frankly well maybe a tenth of them mm-hmm. um, you know because it's it's just it, that kind of DNA just runs the whole way through it um, and also I mean I speak as someone whose mum never let her have a pet um, but what? even then yeah I never had a pet it was very very upsetting we had a fish once that we brought back from the beach in a bucket and it lasted about five hours and then it died and then you ate it <laughs> it wasn't that kind of fish it was really tiny oh, anyway okay. but, but at the same time it's still got kind of emotion to it you know it's still quite sad when, when yeah. Sparky dies it's, it's really quite devastating and, and you can understand why Victor would go to great lengths to uh, reanimate his puppy it's frank and weepy it uh, is a frank and weepy especially towards the end um, but I really, really like this. Phil, you've got a Frank Weenie mug, which indicates that you're you're endorsing this film. I'm Phil DeSillian, and I endorse this movie. <laughs> no, I'm fully behind this one. Yeah. It does, it does. But you have to put hot water in it before you can see the monsters. So I'm drinking a lot of tea at the moment because they're very <laughs> cool monsters. They really are. And I think um, one thing I felt about it, and I loved it as well, um, was that it did feel like sort of almost two movies kind of bolted together, which felt mm. kind of appropriate for a Frankenstein <laughs> film without stretching the point. You know, you had this early kind of Edward Scissorhands-y vibe of the suburban Burbank setting that Tim Burton's so comfortable in and then it does become this big monster mash mm. um, I love both both parts of that yeah. and the little lots of little gags it felt like Ardman's Pirates in the sense that if you watch it again you'll, you'll probably spot a lot more of them yeah I think so and I think also it, it, it's none more Burton I mean like the design of Sparky himself you, you don't even have to pay to see this you can see it on the posters but even before he dies he's not a good looking dog he's a weird weird Burton creation mm. and then he dies and he gets more scars and some bolts through his neck and he looks even weirder and I mean but at the, no time does he ever behave like anything else than a dog no and absolutely he's a 100% dog yeah. yeah absolutely but it, it's just got that feel of it's like actually Tim Burton's uh, book the, uh, the melancholy death of Oyster Boy it has you know it's very much his drawings exactly mm. brought to life in a way that even his animated films haven't quite been before it feels so comfortable in its tone and in its creepiness mm. you know it's cute and adorable but it's got this kind of it's got melancholy and it's got a bit of darkness in it in a way that Dark Shadows and some of his live action stuff recently just hasn't Yeah, you know it's either felt like it's been compromised to get you know to be broader or it doesn't really know where it's at we talked about uh, early parts of Dark Shadows there's some serious vampire 
it just felt jarring in the context of that film. You didn't know where you stood. In this one, you really, throughout, you're like, these are the characters. You love them and you embrace their weirdnesses. The voice cast, you rarely get much by way of, you know, singling out and praise. Old hands like Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara. Martin, Martin Landau. Landau is fantastic as the crazy... Mr. Rice Krusky. Mr. Rice Krispy. <laughs> um, he's, uh, they're all great. They're all Burton veterans and they obviously clearly loved working with him on this and yeah. uh, um, I think you know he was making it at the same time as Dark Shadows mm. clearly and he's, he seems to be able to knock these out on the side of doing the live action ones whereas actually often they turn out to be way better than the live action ones yeah it felt like his heart was more in this one yeah it really did and it's it's fascinating as well I mean he, he Tim Burton will, will never say that he makes creepy movies or scary movies or movies that are you know have a, a mordant edge to them but it's, it's there it's undoubtedly there and I love that and I think there's going to be uh, sadly it, it's stiffed in the States perhaps be resurrected <laughs> as a box office behemoth in six months time but it, it, it did flop in the States and it's, it's sad but I also imagine it finding an audience of slightly morbid 10 to 14 year old kids who are just going to fall in love with this film and just go nuts for it well exhibit A your honour uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas which didn't do big business when it was originally in cinemas and is one of the biggest sort of well certainly merchandising phenomenons and, and home DVD yeah. sales that there is so you know it's not over yet yeah I want to make a point that's probably going to end up upsetting Helen in the near future, but um, <laughs> he does seem to go for these Peter Laurie homages in his stop motion. Oh, I mean, if you think it, about, sorry, if you think about uh, Corpse Bride and the maggot in Corpse Bride is a Peter Laurie, and, and here there's another one, isn't there, Chris? That's right. There's a great Peter Laurie homage in this movie. What's wrong, Helen? Why have you put your fingers in your ears? I'm putting my fingers in my ears and not taking them out until Chris's mouth stops moving. <laughs> I just wonder which Peter Laurie movies Tim Burton gave to his young... That's a very good question. <laughs> Why do I you know how to answer asking that. these questions? Um, all right. <laughs> not M, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, let's move on from that. But one thing I do love about it, and it's weird enough because there's another Martin Short animated movie that's out this week, and it's it's Madagascar 3, and it's it's full of bright primary colours, and I really, really like that film. And But I love about... Uh, Frank Amini said it's a complete antithesis of stuff like that and it doesn't shy away from the, the question of death which most animated movies mm-hmm. do in fact at one point there's a very prominent um, there's a cinema and you can see Bambi is the film that's on the marquee <laughs> and I think that's a very very nice nod to another film to another great animated film that doesn't shy away from the concept of death because a lot of films tiptoe around it these days so uh, Frank Amini uh, uh, yeah unabashed love here we, we, we recommend you go and see it and we give it four stars Okay, so let's uh, move on now to another movie that opened on Wednesday, uh, the aforementioned Paranormal Activity 4, in which Katie, now demonically possessed, of course, moves in next door to a normal family, and the brown stuff starts hitting the whirly blades. Uh, Phil and I hadn't seen the movie before interviewing Katie because they wanted to preserve the mystery and the magic. But now that we have, what are our thoughts? It was effective as a fourth instalment. Um, it's Katie is sort of slightly peripheral. It's, it, it, yeah. It comes at it. it. It basically leapfrogs the third one, which was a prequel. Mm-hmm. This this sets off five years after the second one. Yes. Um, and, and, with and a new family. Yeah. With a girl who's, I think, 15, 16 years old. It incorporates, as I think Katie talked about in the interview, some of the new technology. So it builds in Skype and it builds in that kind of stuff, which is kind of clever. Not Apple Maps. There's a really nice joke with the uh, Xbox Connect and how ghosts show up on the Xbox Connect. You know, a little when you wave at the screen. You ever, you ever done the Xbox Connect? And you, when, when the, yeah, camera, yeah. the camera's focusing on you, it's essentially as heat vision. And you wave and you see yourself, you're a grey blob in your hand, which is slightly warmer because the camera is white. 
And there's a really, really nice joke where the ghosts actually show up in that, which is... I uh, thought you meant they kind of log on, like or the demons, Xbox right. Live. <laughs> the, the, the demon logs on, has his own avatar. Yeah, so, well, demon he, one. He's just wiped all my game points. What's going on? Um, no, this, this is this is interesting, because Paranormal Activity is one of those movies where it's a fantastic, the first one anyway, it's a fantastic audience experience to, to be sitting in a, in a full room and watch people being scared senseless by a Pavlov's dog kind of uh, movie, where... During the daylight, you know that everything's fine, nothing's going to happen, and then it goes to the creepy nighttime vision stuff, and you know that something bad's going to happen. The sound starts rumbling, and evil is lurking around the corner, and it's a very, very effective gambit. And um, amazingly, across the across the the process of uh, four movies, that hasn't really dissipated that much. It it hasn't um, been diluted in any way. It's still creepy. It's still effective. It's maybe getting a little familiar a little old but the scares are still there and they're still effectively done and uh, it, it's it's a fairly decent uh, entry for a fourth movie in a yeah. horror, in a horror you couldn't franchise. just say oh it's a good idea that survived because Blair Witch was a good idea and it died out after well that was just shockingly mishandled I mean they, they true true they had a, a sequel that bore no relation whatsoever to the first one either stylistically or in terms of characters or the directors and you know, yeah. this one at least has has a, a continue uh, what's the word I'm looking for? continuity of of personnel it has so quite scary we gave it three stars we did indeed from the master of the crypt himself Mr. Kim Newman so there you go okay let's move on to the second Martin Short animated movie out this week which is Madagascar 3 Europe's Most Wanted in which Ben Stiller Chris Rock David Schwimmer the second mention for David Schwimmer in this podcast must be something in the water and uh, Jada Pinkett Smith return as the wiseacre talking animals who this time last time we saw them they were in, they, they'd managed to get back to Africa yes. that, was, that was what they wanted to do and then they want to get back to New York because they realise that life in Africa is a little bit boring for them uh, so they want to go back to where it all began but naturally this being Madagascar it's a bit madcap they end up on the run in Europe disguised as circus performers so what are our thoughts on this one Ali well my thoughts are very positive on this one mm. I very 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 much enjoyed it it's a uh, it's like gargling a whole bucket full of sugar and it not giving you any side effects other than way <laughs> now I knew this was going to be a good film or I felt in my heart it was going to be a good film because you saw this at Cannes yeah. and you said in the office genuinely no matter what you think about the first two Madagascars you will absolutely get off on this and I did and I, I sat down and I tried to get as many friends as I could who'd be willing to come to go to the mm. screening with me I only managed about two because oh Madagascar is that the whole yeah. I want to move it move it thing and I was like <laughs> yes, precisely. yeah it is and the animals talk and blah 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 this has both self-awareness in spades and an, uh, and an unbelievable joy in actually being on screen. The, mm. It feels, everyone says this, like a roller coaster. There are whole sections where there's, a, there's this evil French um, animal controller. Played by Francis McDormand. And she chases after our motley crew of uh, reprobate animals who have just, by the way, snorkeled their way from Africa all the way to Cannes. <laughs> yes. And then they decide to snorkel away from Africa and they, they end up in, in Monaco. Which, which, for me, immediately sets up where this movie's coming from because never mind that they should have just done that in the first place mm. just snorkel from New York to Africa because they can clearly but as if you're if you're not on board with a movie in which animals can snorkel several thousand miles with mm. no worries whatsoever then there's not much hope for you with this one I'm afraid there's a wonderful voice cast Brian Cranston that's his second reference as well today yeah. in the podcast plays a Russian tiger that has a little <laughs> bit of an insecurity problem um, uh, that's good and it's good fun it is unbelievably mm. good fun I think if you you don't need to know anything about the previous characters or or how they were before keep your eye out for the penguins because I gather they're going to be getting a spin-off film mm -hmm. they've already got a TV show the penguins are Wallace and Gromit can invent anything do anything gadgety kind of guys and naturally that lends itself to so much fun uh, as they scoop on a train 
with a whole bunch of circus animals around Europe. London gets a look in, Paris gets a look in. I think Rome has a big Colosseum moment. And there's one moment, you mentioned Katy Perry's firework, which is obviously in this film. It's like Dumbo's pink elephant sequence, but mm-hmm. uh, less creepy. Huge kind of out-of-film, out-of-body experience uh, that feels like several fireworks going off your head, again in a good way. And it's all said to Katy Perry's firework, and it's very hard not to love a lot. Yeah, this is a movie I went to see at Cannes, and... Um, I honestly went into the screen like a condemned man. I was like, oh, please, please, really, Madagascar 3? Oh, come on. And then there's just something about the bombardment of jokes of all shapes and sizes, and it is utterly relentless. And it, I think it's earned a certain freedom. I think the directors, Tom McGrath and uh, Conrad Vernon and uh, Chris Miller, um, they... They are, they are completely free now. They don't have to to do anything that a sequel does or should do, uh, conventionally speaking. And so they just bombard you with jokes, visual jokes, puns, uh, slapstick, uh, you know, involve the jokes, long shaggy dog stories, everything you could possibly think of is in this movie, and I loved it. I'm I'm with you. I was not looking forward to this at all because I thought Madagascar was meh and Madagascar Two was actively bad. Um, but uh, the only the only reason to watch the first two I thought was the were the kind of quasi military penguins <laughs> and the amusing monkeys the highbrow monkey yeah um, and uh, and and this one you know I was kind of bracing myself for more of the same but actually there there are just so many jokes in it and so many weird things you know the tiger jumping through you know a hoop as big as a wedding ring <laughs> and it's a sort of a quantum thing that he seems to be able to somehow magically do it's bizarre but wonderful and you know it gets to the point where it wears you down so much that even the song Circus Afro it seems acceptable yes I actually came out this the the cinema singing Circus Afro. I'm not sure it's possible not to. <laughs> <laughs> I I think we have to give a bit of credit to Jeffrey Katzenberg who who because I agree with you. I didn't really think the first one was brilliant. The second one I haven't really seen because put off by what everyone else said about it. And, and it's it's really weird to have a third part of a franchise by which time they should be getting a bit emphysemic and arthritic. Feels so alive <laughs> and full of ideas. And you know it opens with that crazy Salvador Dali dream sequence, like something out of Spellbound. Like when was the last time you saw that in an animated film for kids? Yeah. It's just off the chain, and it's like every idea, crazy idea, Katzenberg or whoever at the studio has just said, yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas usually they'd be more circumspect. Yeah. And certainly recent DreamWorks animations have felt more circumspect even the successful ones. This one is the opposite of circumspect. And I think Francis McDormand's character, uh, I think Chantelle Dubois, I believe mm. is her name, is just a, an amazing She's character. She's like cr- just, a bit of Cruella de Vil mm. in there, a bit of the Terminator, yeah. you know, just bizarre. A bit of, a bit of Inspector Clouseau. Yeah. And she, she recruits this this team of bumbling uh, gendarmes to uh, to help her out and then some Italian policemen get roped in as well and uh, she has her own escape attempt which is just genius she gets locked up at one point and it's just very very funny when she's on screen it just absolutely soars uh, which is uh, one of the best surprises we've had this year so yeah I would thoroughly recommend Madagascar. be in the right frame of mind for it I would say well, no, I don't think you have to be, because as I said, I went in, oh, please don't show me this movie. Oh, please don't show Oh, no, this is pretty good. Oh, no, oh, it's actually brilliant. Oh, okay, brilliant. Yay! <coughs> circus, Afro, Circus, Afro. <laughs> that was essentially what uh, what I did. Okay, so the four stars for that one, uh, Madagascar 3. And now let's finish with uh, five stars for Beasts of the Southern Whoa. Wild. Eh? Good week, eh? Eh? Movies. Movies, Woo-hoo. eh? Love them. Um, I have to say Quivenginet again. Whoa. What is it? <laughs> 
What is it? Quivenjene. Oh, damn, I was hoping you were going to do your version. You did it. Quivenjene Wallace. um, I think she was five when she got the role of Hush Puppy in this film. She was. Um, She was six when she started filming it. Yeah. Uh, So she's spectacular in it. And Dwight Henry, who plays her dad, um, it's set in a a, a fictional area called the bathtub, which Mm. is beyond the levee um, in Louisiana. And it's in the in the build up to a massive cyclone, Hurricane Katrina style cyclone. And it's it's this kind of earthy, poverty stricken in the conventional sense community, but it kinda of transcends the idea of, of poverty, really. They just they're just proud to be there. It has this incredible um energy and and, and, and ferocity and, and sort of furnace heat in the way that all these characters interact at one point the powers that be try to move them away and they and they break out and head straight back to this area and it's just a film that's shot like an early Terence Malick it has so much energy in it and it's it's so much sort of interest in the way that people interact with the environment and they interact with you know the authorities um, but it's lit up by this firecracker performance by Quivenjene Wallace and Dwight Henry who was I think a baker when um, he was, Ben yeah. Zeitland found him mm. um, and presumably still does a bit of baking um, but he's a terrific actor and they don't feel like those kind of non-professional acting performances that, that, that fe- they feel like proper actors these guys mm. um, I wouldn't be surprised to see at least one of them being mentioned for the Oscars I think Quivenjene Wallace would be Oscar nominated yeah I think it's a, it, all the focus has been on Quivenjene and quite rightly so because it, you know she was six years old mm. she, she she started as Hush Puppy and it's a phenomenal performance um, but yeah I, I, Dwight Henry's phenomenal he is phenomenal in it and they have incredible scenes together no yeah. you know he's such, a, he's such a complex character he plays a guy called Wink who's her father and her mother left a while ago um, and so she's she, she's pining for her mother but she's very tough she's been forged as you say in the furnace of the of the bathtub and uh, she's quite sparky and her dad is a, an alcoholic uh, he uh, is a man who is full of hubris he keeps saying oh I can fix this I can you know the world is mm. basically beyond repair but he keeps saying I can do this I can make it like it used to be mm. and he's a very very proud man and, and their relationship is a very complex one and it often involves lots of scenes where they yell at each other where you know and uh, but there's a, there's clearly a great undercurrent of love there as well and for uh, a man who was you know essentially discovered making donuts to to be able to tap into those undercurrents and bring them up on screen mm. is, is just yeah um, it felt amazing l- reminded me a little bit of Nick Nolte's performance in The Warrior it's just this uh, primal yeah. thing that he does um, and they just the two of them just go at each other in this for this love and ferocity. Um, I guess if there's a if there's a sort of story thread, it's it's um, Hush Puppy's attempt to find her missing mother, and uh, and for her to try and put the world right. But it's like nothing else I've seen this year really, and it's spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it handles Ben Zeitlin handles the the magical realism because it is kind of a it felt like a fairy tale to me where things happen. You have these aurochs. These yes. mythical beasts throughout yes. the film, they, they rumble gradually towards the, the, the bathtub. They're frozen um, in the polarized uh, mm. caps and then the idea is a very environmentally conscious film as well. Um, and then they, they, that gets, they get unfrozen and the, the idea is that they're, they're portentous beasts to signal the end of the world in some way. But it doesn't, I don't want to give things away, but there's, uh, mm. there's interesting wrinkles in this movie. Yeah, there are. Um, a storm is coming and this film is a storm I think in a sense it's really 
as I say, unlike anything else mm. that we'll see this year. And there are other films that I think that try and do magical realism and, and have tried in the past and failed. It'll be interesting to see how, say, The Life of Pi does um, in visualising some of these far out ideas. Mm. But um, Ben Zeitlin, nice guy to watch. Absolutely. And also, he wrote the score for this, which is another co wrote, yeah. Co wrote, sorry, yeah. the score for this film, which is also um, phenomenal. So uh, that's, that's five stars. I think we're all agreed on that. I'd say so. Brilliant. So uh, go see The Beast of Southern Wild. I think it's just in key cities, isn't it? Or is it, do we know if it's wide? It's not It's not going to be on at every multiplex in the country, yeah. certainly. So it's if you one, can yeah. see it, get hold of it. Um, and if not, uh, you have our, you know, sympathies. <laughs> Indeed. Leap into a bathtub and, and sail down the Thames in order to see it. Um, other films are available this week from the Rolling Stones documentary Crossfire Hurricane. And uh, there's Sally Potter's Ginger and Rosa as well. Um, we haven't reviewed Crossfire Hurricane yet. I don't think, have we? No. no. We, we haven't reviewed Crossfire Hurricane yet, so a bit of an unknown quantity, and we gave Ginger and Rosa two stars. Uh, and that is it for a jam-packed bumper edition of the Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, when we'll be discussing scary films with Jeffrey Combs, the reanimator himself, Mr. Ooh. Herbert West, in a Halloween-themed edition. And of course, next week also sees the return of James Bond in Skyfall. We'll be discussing that and hopefully have a few special guests as well. A Skyfall spoiler special. Until then, it is goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. Goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. <laughs> and goodbye from me. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to edit some found footage into a three-act structure. See you next week. <laughs>